Our scripture reading for today is Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made, and we come into your presence once again, and we ask now that in the hearing of your word, you would speak to us, and in that hearing, help us to be strengthened, help us to obey. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. So we're continuing through the narrative lectionary. And last week, we heard about Solomon and his prayer for wisdom. Unfortunately, after receiving that precious gift, Solomon will choose instead to make unwise decisions and choices, and his economic, political, and religious policies will set up the conditions for a civil war upon his death, splitting the nation into a northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom will then be led by a series of kings, none of whom will follow the Lord, and they will fall to the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom would be led by a series of kings, some of whom will follow God, but they too will eventually fall to the Babylonians about 150 years or so later. In the beginning of the book of Micah, we just heard, we are told that the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of King Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, that is the southern kingdom, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. The names of those kings placed Micah's ministry before the fall of the northern empire and several decades following that. He lives in a town, uh, Moresheth, which is a small town near Jerusalem. And so that places him in the south. 
And in his lifetime, he will witness the prophesied destruction of the northern kingdom, and he will preach in the aftermath of that event to the southern kingdom as a warning to them. For the southern kingdom during Micah's lifetime, it may have been a time of relative peace and prosperity, but Micah sees that underneath the surface, there is widespread political and economic corruption and injustice, and that the people are just going through the motions of religiosity and their hearts are far from the Lord. In chapter two, he calls out those who covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress man and his house, a man and his inheritance. In chapter three, he calls out the leaders for taking bribes, the priests who teach for a price and the prophets who practice divination for money. In chapter six, God himself asks, shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. In short, the people have turned from following the ways of God. And in our reading today, God challenges Israel to make its case. And God in a sorrowful tone asks, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. God is asking, what is it that he did that was so wrong that they have turned against him? What did God do? He rescued them from the land of Egypt. He redeemed them from the house of slavery. He sent them leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam to guide them. He led them through the wilderness. And when Balak, the king of Moab, wanted to curse them, God arranged it so that Balaam would bless them instead. Which of all the righteous acts that God did for his people, from beyond the Jordan River in Shittim to the promised land in Gilgal, for which one of these many, many righteous acts did the people turn away from him? God calls upon the mountains and the hills as witnesses because they have seen what God has done for his people. And they have also seen what the people have done in response in turning away from God in building these high places and going after foreign idols and committing injustice toward one another without compassion. The people hear these accusations against them, and what do they say? They say, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? The response is an implicit admission of guilt. They know that they have wronged God. They know that God is right and that they have acted unrighteously. But indicative of how far they have fallen, they wrongly think that they can bring something, some sacrifice to appease God and acquit themselves of their guilt. The people show no genuine remorse. They think that they can pay some sort of religious fine and then move on. They wonder, shall I bring a burnt offering? Maybe a calf one year old as it is commanded in the law. 
If that's not enough, maybe I should bring a thousand rams, which is what Solomon did in his burnt offerings in Gibeon. If that's not enough, maybe ten thousands of rivers of oil, an absurd and impossible amount of oil. And if that is not enough, maybe the life of my firstborn. It escalates very rapidly from a reasonable burnt offering of a calf, a single calf, to the forbidden act of a child sacrifice. They wrongly think that if they can bring something to God, he will wipe away their sins. They have completely forgotten what it is to genuinely follow God. They have mistaken ritual as a replacement for relationship. So Micah tells them, he reminds them that they already know, you already know what you have to do. That God has already and repeatedly told them what he requires. For example, in Deuteronomy 10, we find these words. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commending you, commanding you for your good. It's in the law of Moses. They've always known about it. They've always had it. It's not a mystery. It's not complicated. It's right there. It's always been there. And Micah simplifies it even further. He says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I know this is a very popular verse. I understand that these words are inscribed in the Library of Congress on the walls. And that Jimmy Carter, uh, when he became president, you know, he placed his hand in the Bible open to these verses uh, when he was sworn in as president. It's a three-point sermon. What does the Lord require? Do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So that's what I'm going to do. One, do justice. This is not an unusual or unique requirement to Micah. God spoke through other prophets, like the prophet Amos, and said the same thing. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, God says. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I think we would all agree that we all want justice, that we like justice, that we love justice. Unless we are the ones who have broken the law, whether uh, speeding or parking illegally, in which case we want mercy, not justice. I think in general, we are all for justice. We're easily offended when we hear about or see injustice. And we are good at calling out what we perceive to be injustice. And we even demand justice from our courts and the police and others in authority. Even uh, watching or playing a game, we get upset if a ref makes a bad call. We want fair play. When we hear about someone committing a crime, a senseless, vicious crime, we want there to be justice for that person to receive 
fair punishment. But notice here that the command isn't to love justice, to talk about justice, to learn about justice, or even to affirm justice. The command is to do justice. We have to do justice. I know that for some Christians and some churches, the word justice seems too political and that politics should not uh, be preached or that we should somehow avoid that. Justice often gets linked today to social justice, which has become very politicized, as you know, and is associated with one part or one party of this country. But aside from its political connotations, shouldn't all Christians support social justice? That is the equal, fair, just treatment of all people. Isn't that a basic Christian, even a basic human value? To do justice may mean that collectively getting involved in politics and working to change the unfair laws that perpetuate poverty and racism and other social injustices. There are structural and institutional injustices in this country and in every other society that require hard work. And we are called to that work, to that work of justice, to do justice. And at the same time, to do justice is also a personal call to act justly in our daily dealings with others. It means treating others fairly and equally, that we don't take advantage of others. It means, as Proverbs 31 admonishes us, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of those who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. It's not just a command for lawyers and politicians and social workers. We all are called to be actively engaged in working toward a just community, to promote justice in all of our dealings with one another. To do justice is to participate in the recreation of a world where all people can fully experience the shalom of God. In the Gospel of Luke, when people asked John the baptizer what they should do, they were essentially asking, what does the Lord require? And remember what he told them. He said to some, hey, if you have an extra coat, give that extra coat to someone who doesn't have one. Give to the person who is needy. If you've got extra cans of food, share it. Bring it to the church so that the youth group can collect it and give it to those who are struggling with food insecurity. If you're in a position of authority, John said, don't abuse your powers to take more than what you're allowed. Don't act on your greed. Do not use threats to extort money from people who are vulnerable. In other words, John was telling them and us, feeling sorry for your sins, repenting and getting baptized, that's fine but do justice. Let that be evidence of the transformation of your heart. Secondly, love kindness. Kindness, I think here, is just a bad word choice. Other translations say love mercy, which isn't that much better. The Hebrew here says that we are to love chesed, 
chesed. I've said that before, that if there's only one word in Hebrew that we ought to know, it's this word, chesed. When the translators of the King James Bible ran into this word, they made up a new English compound word, loving kindness, as a way to try to capture the fullness of this word. But even loving kindness doesn't quite get it. Chesed describes God's unbreakable, covenantal relationship with his people. It is God's loyal favor and commitment toward us. It's a relentless faithfulness, a steady trustworthiness, a consistent love. And so it's really hard to capture all of that and more with just one word. So to love chesed means that we are to love a way of relating with one another in a way that goes far deeper than mere justice. I think this is why we are called to do justice, but to love chesed. Justice or fairness is the minimum that we have to do to treat others fairly and equally. It's a rule that everyone can follow. It's something that everyone can do. And you don't even have to be engaged in any way emotionally. Like, that's the rule. Let's everybody just follow it. And that's it. But if you are going to love chesed, we are called to go beyond mere obedience. We are called to love chesed that our relationships with one another are to go beyond the keeping of the letter of the law and to relate to one another in the kind of loving kindness and covenantal commitment that God has with us. We are to love chesed, that is, we are to cherish such a commitment to one another. This is far more difficult than doing justice. To do justice means that if someone wrongs me, if someone betrays me, if someone steals from me or breaks a promise or in some other way hurts me, I have a right to punish them or to break my relationship with them. That's justice. It's fair. But if I love chesed, I will go beyond justice and pursue instead forgiveness and a restoration of that relationship. Justice must be done but chesed must be loved because it requires forgiveness and compassion and mercy and kindness, which cannot simply be demanded or made into law. Third, walk humbly with your God. That we are called to walk with God is a pretty amazing statement. From the very beginning, this metaphor was used to describe our relationship with God. In Genesis 3, Adam heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In Genesis 5, we're told that Enoch walked with God. The clear promise of God throughout the scriptures is that God is with us. Jesus' very name, Emmanuel, means God with us. And in Jesus Christ, he literally was with us. He literally walked with his people. Micah says that this walk is to be characterized as humbly, but this word humbly is not the usual word for uh, humbleness or humility in the Bible. It appears here as a unique word, and its roots mean something like carefully, cautiously, or to give attention to. 
So we might say, walk attentively with your God. That is, to walk with a full awareness of the presence of God in our daily lives. And I've shared with you before that my wife and I, uh, we like to take a walk together when we can as a form of exercise. It's a humbling kind of walk for me because, uh, you know, she, she likes to walk fast. And so she has to slow down when, she, uh, when I walk with her. It's something that we like to do together, but once it's done, we can check it off as our exercise for the day, and then we go on to do the rest of our things that we need to do separately. But to walk humbly with God, to be attentive to the presence of God, points to a constant and consistent way of life. It is not a one-time thing that you can check off from your to-do list and move on. It calls for being mindful of the presence of God all the time. So what God calls us to is both much easier and much more difficult than bringing a thousand rams. Bringing a thousand rams is difficult because it's expensive. It's noisy, it's smelly. But it's easier because if you can do it, if you can afford it, once you do it, it's done. It's finished. And then you can go on and do whatever else you need to do. But to do justice, to love chesed, to walk mindfully with the Lord requires a reorientation of life, an entirely different way of living and being that is never completed and requires a daily renewal, a daily rededication. It's been said that it's a lot easier to be a good human doing than it is to be a good human being. In fact, this very question, what does the Lord require of you? should not be understood as what do I have to do that God demands of me so that I can gain God's favor and be in his good graces. That is not the point. The word require, as scholars have pointed out, has this undertone of affection. It's required in the sense that we might say a child requires his mother's love. Flower requires water and sunshine. So it's not that God is insisting or demanding that we do these things to earn his love and forgiveness. The requirement is an invitation to those who already have God as their God. Walk humbly with your God. God is your God already. So this way of life is required in the sense that it's needed for the fullness of life toward which we have been called. And notice again here the gospel order. God reminded his people, here is what I have done for you. How he has repeatedly and consistently rescued them. And as a result, therefore, they are called to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. What is required is a result of having been rescued and forgiven. It's how we respond in response to all that God has done for us already. Let me close with this. You may not have heard of her, but Henrietta Mears was one of the greatest Bible teachers of the second half of the 20th century. So great was her influence, she's been called the mother of modern evangelicalism. If you name any Christian ministry, an evangelical ministry, 
in the latter half of the 20th century, its founder, in all likelihood, was either directly or indirectly influenced by her. The list includes everyone from Dawson Trotman, the founder of Navigators, to Cameron Townsend, the founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators, Bob Pierce, the founder of World, uh, World Vision, Wilbur Smith, who co-founded Fuller Theological Seminary, called her the most inspiring woman leader in Christian causes that I've ever known. Her Sunday school classes attracted thousands and hundreds went into full-time ministry after taking her classes. At her death, Billy Graham said that he doubted if any woman beside his wife and mother had so influenced him. Last Sunday, you heard from Pastor Lee, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, remember? That's the first of the four spiritual laws developed by Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, who developed those ideas under Henrietta Mears' teaching. My own testimony is that I came to faith in college my freshman year through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, hearing those words, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And so I consider Henrietta Mears a great, great godmother. There are many stories about her, as you might imagine, but my favorite is this that I think I've shared with you years and years ago. The story is that she was at a youth, re a youth retreat that she was leading, and the students were gathered around the campfire on the final night, as they tend to do at uh, youth retreats. And the students went around one by one sharing what they had learned and how they were going to commit themselves uh, more fully to Jesus Christ. And there was one young man uh, who had kind of been kind of uh, aloof and seemed like he was really you know, paying attention and so on. And when his turn came, he stood up and he said that he wanted to become a Christian and that as a sign of that, he wasn't going to smoke anymore. And so he dramatically took out his pack of cigarettes and threw them into the fire as a sign of his commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, I think if I had been there, if I was a youth pastor, I would have said something like, man, that's good, man. That's really great. Thanks for sharing that, you know? And uh, I'm glad you're not gonna smoke anymore. You know, that's bad for your health. Um, but that's a good decision. Maybe you could share something a little bit more about what it means for you now to, to follow Christ. I would have been glad that here was someone who was doing something, taking a step. But that's not what Henrietta Mears did. After he threw the pack of cigarettes into the fire, she put her hand into the fire, grabbed the pack of cigarettes out of the fire, tossed them at his feet, and she said to him, God doesn't want your cigarettes. God wants you. That's why she was so great. She saw immediately that he was offering the equivalent of a thousand rams. God doesn't want your cigarettes. He wants you. Parents, what do you do with a rebellious, a rebellious daughter or a son who has lost his way? What are your options? After all your pleading, after all your prayers and tears, after showing them all the consequences of bad decisions, after reminding them of all your love for them, after all that, what do you hope for? Certainly you want them to make better choices. Certainly you want them to quit smoking. 
But above all, but above all, don't you want them to walk with you, to be in love with you and you with them? That's the plea that God is making here. I don't want your thousand rams. I don't want your rivers of oil. I don't want your cigarettes. I want you. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we so easily forget. So we are thankful that we can gather together and remind each other of how much you love us. And that your desire for us is us. And so God, we want to be here just to be in your presence. To walk mindfully with you. Speak to us. Hear our prayers. And help us to find our delight in you. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.